If you could stand for the reading of scripture, please. Amen. Our reading today is Matthew 3, 13 through 17. Thank you. <laughs> then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Loving the energy in here. It is so good to be together. Let me remind for those who are coming or let you know kind of what we're doing for those who are just joining us. Um, Typically, in Sundays, we go through series, either a book of the Bible or every once in a while a topical kind of series. Um, many parts of the body, many parts of the church follow a liturgical calendar, which is um, not series-specific, but instead follows the seven big seasons of the church calendar, um, two of which we've already gone through. Advent is in December, the preparation and waiting and reflection on the coming of God in the person of Christ. Then Christmas time or Christmas tide, I think it's certainly called, is its own season. And um, now we're in the season often called the Epiphany between now and Lent. And so we thought we would uh, follow the liturgical calendar. And there's a lectionary that has assigned passages each week. There's usually a gospel reading, a psalm, an Old Testament passage. So we are going through the book of Matthew. So the series is called Together in Matthew. But because we are following the liturgical calendar between now and the summer, it will not be a chronological movement through Matthew will be based on the church calendar. And so um, just in terms of framing it, a lot of you know that this passage that we're doing today is, if it's not my favorite, it's at the top of the list. And so it may just seem like I'm finding one more excuse to jam this into the rotation, but that is not what we're doing. It is the assigned passage for today. And so I, this is just kind of part of framing before we jump into this. So these next seven Sundays between now and um, when Lent starts, uh, the lectionary that we're following calls this these seven weeks um, they build around the single word discipleship uh, between now and uh, uh, Lent. Uh, seven passages from the book of Matthew that look at discipleship, asking the question, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus, to give our all to the God who's given all to us? And so I was uh, looking forward to this because I've got my own kind of approach of how what passages I would choose if I was doing seven weeks on discipleship, but we're going to stick with the assigned passages in the lectionary on this. And so fittingly, uh, they start the same place I would start with discipleship with this passage. So here's what I want to do on this one. I, I'm excited about this. It's important for me. This is one of those I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share a sermon that I wish I would have heard when I was younger because I think it would have sped things up and made things more clear for me and been a really helpful resource. Here's what I'd like to suggest today. I would like to suggest that in this encounter with Jesus, where Jesus asks to be baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, I want to suggest that the three biggest questions of discipleship are seen here. In fact, I'd go even broader than that. I would say there are three questions that are the three most important questions in life. 
a little bit audacious to say that we can answer or ask the three biggest questions of life. Uh, I want to make a case that th these are the three biggest questions of discipleship, of life itself, that how we answer these will shape us and our daily experience of everything more than any other questions. And so I don't want to I don't want the mystery to be the questions. I want to ask them right up front, and I don't want to show how for Jesus these questions get answered. So let me propose what I believe are the three most important questions in life. So if you could, Sergio, flip to that. Thank you. And let's just kind of sit with each one of these for a moment, and then we'll kind of go back through each one as it is addressed in the baptism of Jesus. All right, I would suggest these are the three biggest questions. Question number one, what is God like? Okay, that's the most existential, cosmically, divinely important question that there is to life. What is God like? Question two, who am I to God? So whatever this God is like, how does God think about who I am? How does God see me? How does God think about me? It's all under that second one. Who am I to God? And then third, kind of a big question, but how do these first two, how does the answer these first two, how do these inform how I think about my life's purpose? Okay, um, what is God like? Who am I to God? And how do these inform my life's purpose? All right, so, Sergio, if you don't mind, let's go back to the passage and, and, and begin to go through these. Like, all right, so let's start with this first one. What is God like? Uh, A.W. Tozer was a popular author when I was younger, um, wrote a whole bunch of books on uh, the Bible on God. He used to say this, and I always thought it was intriguing, and the, the older I get, the more and more I believe it. He used to say, if I could know just one thing about a person, if I could know just one thing about a person, the most important thing I could know is not what is their family tree, not what is their occupation, not what is their hobbies, what is their interest. If there's just one thing I could know about somebody that would tell me everything I need to know, it's what do they think about God? Who do they understand God to be? And again, the older I get, the more that makes sense because, you know, if, even if you don't articulate these on a daily basis, if your assumption of who God is is that God is just kind of this removed deity that's not very involved in the day-to-day -day affairs of the world, then that will totally shape how you live, right? That'll have a complete and huge impact on how you live. If you view God as fundamentally angry and judgmental, you, whenever you think about deeper spiritual things, you'll feel a sense of shame, a sense of fear, anxiety. Right? If you think of God as heavily stringent, very rules-based, then the way your religious devotion plays out will then mirror that um, extreme... Uh, Stringent, extremely stringent in commitment to rules, right? So how we think of God is so important. So here becomes the question, how did Jesus think about God? Now, there's a whole lot of like theologically interesting um, trails we could go on here that we don't have time for. I just, uh, uh, just to, I guess, just mention this because it feels really important, even though I'm like moving in and coming right back out. But again, we're first season, the church calendar is Advent. That's where we're thinking about the importance of God coming in the flesh. There are many, 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 many reasons it's important that God came in the flesh in the person of Jesus. Here's just one of the many in what's applicable to this. When Jesus was sent by the Trinity into the flesh to show us God in the person, one of the many reasons it was important that God came in the flesh of Jesus was to show us how we as human beings, you and us, you and I, us, one of the reasons the incarnation was important is to show how we as human beings are to think about God, right? When we watch how Jesus thinks about God, when we watch how Jesus interacts with God, when we watch how Jesus sees God, that's meant to inform how we should see God, how we should interact with God. So it's very, very significant when Jesus teaches his disciples, the disciples say, we see you pray, we see you've got this amazing relationship with God. How do you pray to God? The Lord's Prayer, what does it begin? How does Jesus teach the people to pray to God? Our Father. 
who aren't in heaven, right? And um, th that's never meant to be limited gender-wise, just a father. You got Jesus, as part of the Trinity, knows that God is every bit his mother too. But the, the idea being that when Jesus thinks of God, Jesus thinks of a loving father, of a loving parent, of a loving, perfect love that comes from a parent to a child. All right, so here's why I want to come back to this. Uh, each, each part of this is so vivid, if you let it all the way in. When Jesus prays our father, when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, our Father, when Jesus imagines God and imagines what it's like to interact with God, the very first interaction with God that we see in the New Testament between Jesus and God is this, right? So when Jesus thinks of God, um, go to the next part, if you would, uh, Sergio. When Jesus thinks of God, I want you to, I want you to in, 16, in verse 16, when it says, so Jesus goes to be baptized, which uh, there's all these things I like, kind of want to say, don't want to get deep into. So the word baptized just means to be immersed, to be fully immersed into it. So you could ask kind of this theological question, why did Jesus need to be baptized? He never sinned. Um, I think you can make a pretty clear case that Jesus needed to be baptized to show us how badly we need to be immersed in these words. All right, so Jesus goes to John the Baptist, gets baptized. When he comes out of the water, here's what God looks like for Jesus. This is the singular thing I'm building up to that I want you to really reflect on. At that moment, heaven was opened. And Jesus saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him and heard a voice from heaven that said, this is my son whom I love and whom I am well pleased. When Jesus thinks of God, what does Jesus think of? Jesus thinks of a God who is full of love. When Jesus thinks of God, Jesus thinks of a God who draws near, who speaks over, sings over even God's children. When Jesus thinks of God at the front and center, Jesus thinks of a God who's connected, who's intimate. All right, now that's not all of who God is. The whole Bible is filled with all the different portraits, but it is so significant to remember that for Jesus, the center point of who God was is more clearly seen here than anywhere. Anything that we see about who God is should start with how Jesus understood who God to be. And when Jesus prayed, our Father who art in heaven, this is what Jesus was teaching his disciples. All right, I, like, I feel like that just cannot be stressed enough. I, I try to pray multiple times a day to our Father, just to reflect on that. When you pray that part, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, this is what we should be thinking of. This is what God is like. Deep, 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 right? I mean, maybe something you've heard many, many times, and yet we can't say it enough times. When we think of God, this should be, this is what God wants us to come to know of God that God is a God of love, of intimacy, of nearness, of connection. This is who God is. Amen? Okay, let's go to the next one. You can just leave this up here for now. So if the first question is, who is God? The second question, who am I to God? Who am I to God? Now, I don't think there's actually a subject matter I think about more or read about more than the idea of identity, a big idea but the idea, the idea of identity, how I come to understand who I am. And uh, it's when I do read for non-sermon prep, this is what I read about, all my favorite movies. In fact, if I can just complain for a moment here, I feel like I get a bad rap when it comes to movies. Um, I feel like people portray me as this like really overly simplistic, Neanderthal-like kind of person. Um, like if you ask Liz what kind of movies I like, she'll say, she does say that. She says, if there's a bad guy, and if there's a damsel in distress, and if the good guy saves the damn distress stress from the bad guy, Daniel's going to love that movie. <laughs> now, it feels true, but a little bit overly simplistic. 
uh, that doesn't get to the core of it. I would like to think of myself as being much deeper than that. So as an exercise, and um, for those who are interested, we can go through this in a non-sermon time. I went back through all my favorite movies to figure out if that's really that simple. You know what really did pop out to me? That this, I was really doing it this week when I was talking with my sister. The common thread through all of them is that it's about identity development. It's about, hey, who just laughed at Charles? I, that, that did not, you did not sound like you believed me. And I'm, now I almost feel like I have to make the case. So, you know, somebody says, oh, he loves Daredevil. That's just because it's the action and he likes the girl. I'm like, well, but no, it's about him growing into the fullness of who he is, this journey of like the discovery of the true self. That's, I, the, the cackles tell me you don't believe me. So I'm going to stop, I'm going to stop trying to convince you of this. Um, it's true, but I'm not going to try to convince you of this. But it really is, I actually would say, I think probably all of us think about this a lot, even if we don't use this words. We think about this a lot. How do you become who you're supposed to be? Right? How do you live from the deepest, truest self of who you are? And here is what I would say is probably my favorite part about the biblical story, the way that the Bible talks about who God is and how God thinks of us. The Bible recognizes and acknowledges that the journey into identity is a lifelong quest. The, the journey into growing into who you're supposed to be, you'll, you'll be going into deeper and deeper places all the way till you draw your last breath, right? That identity journey is never over, and there's a lot of positive parts. There's a lot of hiccups to it. There's a lot of subchapters to it. But here's what I love about the story of the Bible is that where we're trying to go, what the vision is in identity, is made crystal clear all the way along the way. Now, the Bible doesn't make it sound like super simple, like just believe it, it's there, it's, it's, it's still a journey. But the center point, where we're going, is made so clear, and we see it again in this passage. The identity journey, for all of us, and we get there in our own way, and it kind of feels and means something different, but the identity journey, the center point for all of us, is always wrapped around three words. Always. Always will be wrapped around three words. That you come into a deeper revelation that you are God's child. Say these with me. God's child. That you are God's beloved and that God absolutely delights in you. That was a hard one to repeat, but you can just hear that one, that, God, that, that you are God's child, that you are God's beloved, and that God absolutely delights in you. What, and you see these in these words, but let, let's, rem, let's remember the significance. This is the first thing we see in the life of Jesus as an adult. Um, I remember the first time this hit for me, and I'll repeat this many times over the years, but it's just so significant. When I heard those, and I started to reflect for the first time on those words, for me, son, you know, son, beloved, delighted in, I remember thinking, this has to be what Jesus hears at the end, right? After Jesus has accomplished all of his tasks, after he's performed all the miracles, after he's helped all the people, after he's stood up faithfully to the test before him, that's when you get to hear, you are my child, you are my beloved, you are delighted in, right? After you ran the race well, after you finished strong, Right? And I remember the first time that this actually occurred to me, like, no, Jesus ain't done nothing yet when he hears these words. He ain't healed nobody yet. He ain't performed any miracles yet. He didn't accomplish any amazing tasks yet. In fact, not only is he not to do this to earn God's love, he needs to know who he is before he ever goes to try to do any of those things. He doesn't go do those things to hear this from God. He needs to know who he is from God in order to step into the task that God has for him. And this is some of the beautiful, beautiful, beautiful parts of the story of Christianity, something that's unrivaled in any other story, where God comes to show us who we are through Jesus, but Jesus is the one who then invites us 
into this reality with God where we stand in the place of Jesus and we get to know, we get to hear, we get to internalize the voice of God who says, you're my daughter. You are my beloved. And that third one, I think in a lot of ways, that third one is the hardest to believe. You know, I think a lot of us have been trained, especially grew up in church, to believe that even though I'm a sinner, God has forgiven me. That's incredible that God's forgiven me and that's true, um, that God accepts me, tolerates me. But that's not how, that's not what Jesus hears, is that you're a sinner forgiven by the grace of God. God says, I take pleasure. Pleasure is a beautiful, hard to believe word. To believe that God looks at you and takes pleasure, that God delights in you is really hard to believe. And that's why you don't even have to be a parent to do this. But even the hardest person, you watch them, if they end up having a kid, something gets accessed inside of a human being when they're around a little kid, right? They can access this pleasure place, this delight place, something that doesn't put on conditions, doesn't require performance of any type, is incredibly forgiving even when mistakes are made, to think that this is how God sees us. And so when we ask the second question, who am I to God? Now, the truth of it is most, I, I mean, I actually, I, I would almost go so far to summarize to say, I think this is the whole of the life that when the Apostle Paul talks about love in 1 Corinthians 13, and he says, right now we see through a glass dimly, but someday we'll see clearly face to face. I think the whole journey between now and heaven is coming to believe that this is who God thinks you are. And I think when you see God face to face, that's the first time you'll actually fully believe this. I think that's the first time you'll fully believe that you're God's child. I think it's the first time you'll fully know what it means to be God's beloved. I think it's the first time you'll know what it's like to, to have a divine triune being have absolute delight in you. But I don't think that means we're not supposed to experience it now. I think that's the journey we're on. And I think you can go through, if you go back through and look over your course of your life, times where you say, here's an era where I felt like I went to a deep place. Here's a person that helped me go to a deep place. I bet you what you'll find is that really what helped that person take you to a deep place was that they reminded you of who you were in a new kind of a way, that you had just a little bit deeper of a sense of who you were as a child of God, that you had just a little bit of a deeper sense that you actually are God's beloved, that you actually imagined for a moment that perhaps God does indeed delight in you. That is where, that is where all transformation takes place. I believe that more than anything. So that's the second, that's the second big thing we see here. I think, I think this is twofold. I think Jesus needed this as a human being himself, but I also think Jesus is showing us the journey that we need to go on. The discipleship journey we need to go on is not stuff that we just do for God, with God, not just stuff we participate in, that all comes with it. The starting point is coming to know who God is with a deep sense of brilliance and vibrancy and a deep sense of knowing who we are to God. And then final thing that I just want to say a word on here because so much can be said on this, but that last big question, how do these inform my life's purposes? Um, there's like a simple way to say this and then like a slightly more complex way that I just want to kind of reference because I think it's an important part of the story. So the simple way to say this, right, is what is God's purpose for me? I'm at the largest level. I'm to come to know that love of God and then I'm coming to share that love of God, right? Uh, we are called to participate in the manifestation and expression of God's love in every way in the world through the people we meet, through the systems and structures that we pursue as we move towards God's vision of shalom. I mean, Jesus simplified it, right? At the end of the day, it's to love God, to, to know who God is and know who you are, to love our neighbor. What I want to draw out from this, though, is if you look at the life of Jesus, and this isn't included in the reading, but it's what happens next in all four gospel accounts. Uh, there's two things that happen next that are so critical to these first two questions, who is God, who am I? 
Bible students, you know what happens next. After Jesus gets baptized here, what happens? It's in Matthew here, it's in chapter 4, but in all four gospel accounts. Where does Jesus head after he gets baptized by John in the Jordan River? Yes, into the wilderness. In fact, all four gospel accounts say Jesus didn't just go there. Jesus was sent to the wilderness by the Spirit. So the Spirit reminds Jesus that he is loved and delighted in by God. And then the Spirit sends Jesus into the wilderness. Why? Well, some would say that he was getting ready to confront and fight the devil. I don't actually think that's the primary reason. That is what happens at the end of the 40 days and 40 nights. I believe that the reason Jesus was sent into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights is because this message of being God's child and being God's beloved and God delighting in is so big and so weighty and so life-changing that you have to immerse yourself in it to actually come to believe it. I strongly believe that the purpose of why Jesus was sent into the desert was to sit in the reality of what had just been spoken over him by God. To spend undistracted, absolutely focused time reflecting on what each part of that song means. To be thought of as God's child. To be thought of as God's beloved. To be thought of as one who is delighted in. And then, at the end, he does indeed fight the devil, and that all happens before Jesus goes into ministry. Why is that significant within this sermon when we've already covered so much? Because here's, here's the two things I would take from that. The first two questions would change everything. Who is God? Who am I to God? But we have got to take the same pattern of what Jesus did of finding ways to let that message go deep. We've got to figure out ways that make sense for us that create that same kind of space whether it's taking a walk in the morning, whether it's daily devotions, whether it's listening to worship music, whether it's just kind of conscious attentiveness throughout the day where you're deliberately reminding yourself of who you are with God. Uh, let me say it like this. If Jesus in the flesh, like this, is my, this is my belief what happened in the, in, the, in the desert, in the wilderness. If Jesus in the flesh needed 40 days and 40 nights of undistracted, attention to let this message go in deep so that he could fight evil and go live out his purpose. I mean, how much more do we need? <laughs> right? So this isn't meant to be a pressure thing. It's not meant to be another do. In fact, I think it's quite the opposite. It's about suggesting that there's, there's this divine reality around us all the time of a loving triune God who is reminding us who God is and reminding us who we are, but we're so caught up in everything but that that it just doesn't go in as deep as it needs to go in. And so Jesus spends 40 days, 40 nights letting that go all the way in. And then he fights the devil. And the reason I think that piece is important too is just to remember that this is not just about me and God when I think of who is God, who am I, but that God is sending us out into the world and that when we go to proclaim and demonstrate and participate in the expression of the love of God, we will meet evil... <laughs> the resistance of evil at every stage of the way. And that's its own whole sermon, and we talk about that going on quite frequently here, so I'm not trying to get into that as much, as much as to remind us that all this is locked together. There's who God is, there's who's, who we are, we're sent out into the world, but Jesus in his final prayer in John 17, G Jesus says, oh God, I have come to know your love in a way that has changed everything. I want my disciples to know that love in a way that's changed everything. Now as I send them out into the world, I'm not trying to take them out of the world. I'm trying to send them in to show your love, but I'm praying for protection from the evil one. That's what Jesus says in his final prayer in John 17. I'm sending them out into the world in love, but I, they need your protection from the evil one. 
bottom line being that as we look to live out this love in the world, we will face evil. And the reason I felt, even though this is a lot of content, I felt it was so important to include that in here is because, and this is its own whole sermon, I hope I can get to this one at some point, you cannot effectively fight evil without knowing who God is and knowing who you are. That's the bottom line I'm trying to get here. You can, what's waiting for us when we try to participate with the love of God? I mean, this is what all language of injustice and oppression comes from. There, there are both individual and systems that, that participate in evil that try to prohibit us from experiencing the love of God, prohibit all of God's children from experiencing the love of God. And so you got to be geared up for that. You got to be geared up for that. And so I think it's so, so important that as much as I love the baptism of Jesus, it can't ever be disconnected from what happens next, the temptation and the duel with the devil. Because Jesus hears these words from God that remind him who God is, who he is. Then he's got to spend 40 days getting ready for it. And then he's got to show that he's got a deep enough connection to that love to be able to stand up to the power of evil as he goes to set out on his purposes. So even though your purposes at a specific level will differ from person to person, what will be shared amongst all of us is that you should know who God is, that you should know who you are, and that you will join in God's work in the world, that every person will know how beloved that they are, and you'll get a bunch of evil that will try to subdue that at every stage of the way, and so you need to know who you are. You need to know who you are, and you've got to trust that there's something, when you come up against the face of evil, you got to trust there's something bigger than that. There's something more powerful than that, that there's an access you have to God and God's love and God's power that gives you the ferocity to be able to stand up to what, what we will be standing up against. So it's a, it's a, it's a lot <laughs> to cover all three of those in one, but this is one of those sermons where I feel like we can kind of look at the whole picture and then continue to reflect on those. But that, I would suggest those are the three most important questions that you will ever ask and answer in life. Who is God? Who are you to God? And how does that shape the way you live your purpose in the world? So as we kick off this next part of it, Seven weeks of discipleship leading up to Lent. Um, those are the three questions that shape everything as a disciple. Everything we do from, starts from those. Who is God? Who am I? How does that shape my purposes in the world? Amen? Join me in prayer, if you will. Uh, God, even as we do this right now, as we dive into this passage and reflect on this, I feel it so deeply in my spirit. Uh, I first, I start with testimony. This is, this is my testimony of increasingly seeing the reality of who you are and I praise you for that I am, I, I, I just can never find the words to express my gratitude that whenever I breathe my last breath in this life, that that's not the end of anything, really. That it's the next corridor into the larger story of a God of love. A God of love who longs to know and be known, to see and be seen, to have us be transformed by the essence of this love. So I get, before moving too fast, I'm just feeling the need. I, I want to stop here for a moment, God. This first question of who is God? For those who are in this room right now, those who are virtually, those on the podcast, I just pray every one of us would pause for a moment and let ourselves sit with that question. And God, in this moment, I am praying that on the left side, we can put how we actually think of you and then on the right side of our brain, we can put this passage of how Jesus thought of God. And we ask for healing. We ask for you to release the power of the narratives 
that perpetuate the distorted versions of who you are, whatever that might be, absent, uninterested, angry, vengeful, judgmental, disappointed. Mm. I'm kind of sharing this as I'm praying, but this has just come to my mind. I was talking to a pastor who said he just did a pastor's retreat. There's 10 pastors there. They did an exercise. They said, if you were honestly not given the right answer of how you think about God, but if you actually gave the answer of how you actually think about God, what would you say? This pastor said nine of the ten pastors answered disappointed that God is disappointed with them. So I'm just feeling that in this moment, God, for this is not going to all happen in this moment, but we can seal this moment as a time where we took this seriously. How we actually think of you and how we think of how you think of us does not match how Jesus thought of you at the baptism of, in the Jordan River and how he thought of how you thought of him. So I'm asking now, God, in this moment for two things. First thing I'm asking for is just for a consciousness, for an awareness of us to recognize that how we think of you and how we think of how you think of us very rarely matches up with how you actually claim to think of us and who you say you are in Scripture. So let us just be aware. Let us, let us just name that reality that there's a disconnect between how you say you show up with us and how we often think of you. And then, God, I pray for healing. I think this is the journey we're all on. I really do believe that if we saw you clearly for who you are, saw ourselves clearly, boy, our lives would be different. We wouldn't be turned upside down by every negative thing said to us. We wouldn't be on the hunt for who's the next person that can tell us we're beautiful or handsome. We wouldn't be in this desperate search for a mother figure, a father figure who could say the words that ultimately only you can say to us. This is not to minimize the wounds, the real things that have happened to call those things into question. But ultimately, this is the healing journey for us to locate the source to those answers as being within you alone. Certainly, human to human, we can play a huge role now. We can be a reflection to each other. We can say those words to each other of value and beauty and significance. But it's not because we actually have the authority to say it to another. It's because you have said it. Oh God, as we wrap this up and finish in worship, I just one more time want to remember together that Jesus in the flesh needed to see clearly who God was. And Jesus in the flesh needed to hear who he was to that God. The writer of Hebrews calls us the brothers and sisters of Jesus, the siblings of Jesus. We too desperately need to see who you are with clarity. We too desperately need to be told by you who we are to you. So as we respond to worship, may this be just the first of 100,000 moments where we are reminded of who you are and who we are. May the truth of that certainly go into our minds, 
But I love the depiction of the baptism. It says the spirit alighted on him. It lit him up. It came over him. It just reminds us that this is a multi-sensory reality that we need. We need to understand it logically, but emotionally we need to know it. Spiritually we need to know it. Our whole bodies, our whole beings need to be reminded of these truths. So continue to take us deeper into these living waters, we pray. And all people said, amen. If you're able to stand, if you would stand and uh, give a benediction, but just say a couple words leading into this kind of final benediction. What I'm hoping will just be so uh, central to this that you'll never forget is remembering that at the foundation of life for Jesus was a constant memory reminding himself of who God was and reminding himself of who he was to God. I think we see this so clearly in the baptism that this is what Jesus needed. So I was looking over again this week, one of the classic books on this passage is from Henry Now. It's called The Life of the Beloved, aptly named, right? And uh, what he says here is what I want to give as a benediction. So let me read it first and then kind of say it again as a benediction. Uh, but how now and said, the voice of God, that voice that calls you child, that calls you beloved, that calls you the one who God delights in, that voice goes with you wherever you go. That voice goes with you wherever it goes, wherever you go. But it must be consciously and consistently recognized, received, honored, and drawn upon. And so that's what I would like to share is our benediction today. I pray that you will trust that everywhere you go, that voice goes with you. Everywhere and anywhere you go, that voice goes with you. But we nonetheless consistently must do our part to recognize. So think of each one, each of these four words as, as, as our benediction. To recognize that voice. To receive that voice. To honor that voice. And to draw upon that voice. May that be something that every year we go deeper and deeper into. To recognize, to receive, to honor, and draw upon. And all God's people said, amen. Love you all.